0: Good morning. Um, I know most of you, uh, but in, in case you haven't met me, my name is Joel Parker. Uh, I'm married to Caroline. We have a 13-year-old daughter, Sadie, and a 10-year-old son, Oliver, and, and we've been part of the chapel since it started here in 2010. And I also serve with a team of elders here. Uh, you might be wondering about Brad, our senior pastor, Brad Williams. He's actually out of town uh, he is in Tennessee moving in their oldest daughter, Jessica, into college. And then, of course, my dad, Richard Parker, is also on staff here as Pastor Emeritus. He often will fill in for Brad, but he was already scheduled to be in the panhandle. He's preaching as we speak for a church uh, in, near Carabell. He's actually preaching at two churches, the same message, but preaching it and hopping over elsewhere. And so... Um, just full transparency, I'd lo- I would love to tell you that I was option number three, but in reality, uh, another person with pastoral experience who I won't name, but he-, he may or may not have read the call to worship, he, he was actually given the opportunity <laughs> to preach, um, but he had prior commitments leading up to today. So I basically said, if I'm option four, I'll do it if you build me a platform, then that will no, actually, I'm going to try not to trip. This was there's a surprise each week here. Okay, um, but you know, jokes aside, I actually am eager to preach a sermon. I've I've never preached a full sermon before. Several several of you have told me you've been praying for me. Which I love that. That's part of what it means to be in the church. And in some ways, the sermon I'll preach is a reflection on ways you all have preached to me in your lives, even in conversations I've had with some of you about this passage. So let's actually take a moment to pray together before we open up the text. Father, thank you that when we gather like this, we know that you are delighted. We know that you're with us. I just admit to you, uh, that I have some trepidation about trying to clearly communicate what you have inspired but thank you that I'm communicating to friends and thank you that all of the power comes from your scriptures that your spirit has inspired and I pray that your spirit would divide truth even even as I aim to unfold what I think is here I pray that anything that is true and honoring to you would take root and if anything I say is ultimately unhelpful or even not accurate that you would cause that to fall away. Uh, and, and all glory to you in this time together. In your son's name we pray, amen. Uh, we're gonna be in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So if you have your copy of God's word, please uh, turn there now. We're gonna zero in on verses 27 through 32. Uh, but just to kind of paint a big picture as we, as we come in into the middle of, of the Apostle Paul's thought process here, uh, part of what I hope we take away from this text is that the Lord's Supper nourishes us and encourages us, and in fact is one of the primary means the Lord has ordained to bring us safely home to Him. That was even referenced in the song, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder, that he'll bring, we'll be brought safely to God. And what's challenging about these verses is that some of the ways in which the Lord uses the supper to do that is through Spirit-inspired discernment and through fatherly discipline. Those aren't, you know, discernment and discipline are not always the first you know, words that pop into our mind when we think about the Lord's Supper. And certainly that's not all that's going on in the Lord's Supper, but it is, it is part of it. And so uh, to get the full flow of the thought, I'm actually going to start reading several verses back in verse 17. So this is chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, verse 17. I'll read through 32. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together... eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. One of the things John Calvin points out in his commentary on these verses is that um, in verse 27 which is our first point of focus when Paul writes uh, about warning them about drinking and eating in an unworthy manner, that what Paul is doing is he's expanding from the specific to the general. In other words, he's, Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for a particular circumstance, a very specific way in which they are seriously sinning. He's, he's challenging them on that, he's rebuking them on that, but then he uses that as an occasion to springboard into a broader category of Basically, there are various ways that we could take the supper in an unworthy manner. But to kind of get our bearings, just a brief review on what is it that was specifically happening in the Corinthian church. Well, we read about it in verses 17 through 22, and it's actually shocking what they're doing. You know, the very supper that's meant to celebrate salvation and union with Christ and union with each other has been turned into sort of an odd, almost unholy you know, pre-gaming for, like, a pagan party that's to come later. And really what was going on is at this stage in the Roman Empire, Sunday, the Lord's Day, was not a day of rest. That wouldn't happen until a few hundred years later under Constantine. It was a typical work day in Corinth. But yet, those first Christians committed themselves to setting aside the Lord's Day to celebrate the, re- the resurrection. But you can imagine with the different sort of social stratus that were in, in the church What this would mean is that if you were lower class or had a job where you were obligated to report to somebody else all day long, or perhaps even if you were a slave, you couldn't join the assembly till the evening time. Whereas if you were not living hand to mouth, if you had resources, you had the ability to show up early with your resources, with your food and your drink. And so what these Corinthians were doing were actually not waiting on one another, starting to become gluttonous, and even to the point of getting drunk. It, and so this is so abhorrent to Paul that what he, what he says is, this isn't even the Lord's Supper. Like, it would have been better if you just stayed at home. So he's very much calling them back to the basics and the fundamentals when he starts in verses 23 through 26 to just remind them, remember what the Lord said this is about. And uh, as I said, we're, we're mostly gonna drill down in verses 27 through 32, but in order to understand what it means to take it in an unworthy manner, it is helpful to just refresh ourselves on even what Paul records in verses 23 through 26. So just a few things I want to point out about what the Lord's Supper, in fact, represents. Well, most wondrously, it it represents salvation. Specifically, Jesus' body given for us and his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, That, that shouts that there's salvation for anybody who would repent and turn from their sins and trust alone in Christ for salvation. That's one of the reasons it's considered a, a celebration. And even in the notion of Jesus giving his body, I mean, that, that could be a whole other sermon on the meaning of the incarnation. But, uh, but I'll just say this. Uh, the way Hebrews puts it is that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And, and that is because... You and I, in each of us, each person, is made in God's image, but we have all in our own specific ways so- rebelled against God's right, rule, and authority in our lives. And because God is perfectly good, perfectly just, and full of light, he cannot have you know, uninterrupted fellowship with darkness. But the good news is that God is also infinitely loving and gracious, which is why he did not hold back his only son and sent Jesus to live in the flesh. He he could have teleported Jesus, right? But why, why didn't he do that? Why did Jesus take on flesh? Well, because a righteous God demands from the people he's created perfect obedience to his law, and none of us can do that on our own. So Jesus came as our substitute, as our representative on our behalf, he took on flesh, walked among us, didn't sin once. And, and that's credited to our account if we come to him in faith. M- Martin Luther called it the great exchange that our sins are put on Jesus' shoulders, his righteousness is put on us. So he was righteous for us. He, he wasn't just a good example, he was actually filling the law on behalf of humanity. And of course, the the the, the, uh, the cup, shedding of... of uh, the shedding of blood. That's because sin requires an atonement. It requires a payment. The, The notion of propitiation that we see in Hebrews is that God has a good and correct wrath that must be satisfied, but he's pleased to have that wrath satisfied by, in the words of Isaiah, crushing his son. He was crushed for our iniquities. All of this is wrapped up in what is involved in the Lord's Supper. Jesus gave his body. He lived for us. He died for us he shed his blood. He also conquered the grave. Um, There's also uh, important notions of what it means, uh, the new covenant. I'll I'll just say if you want to update yourself on the new covenant later this week, read back-to-back two chapters. Um, You can read in the Old Testament Exodus chapter 12 about the Passover, and then you can pivot and read Hebrews chapters chapters 8. There's a section within chapter 8 if you match those together, I think you'll see the flow of how the Passover, the Passover meal foreshadowed the Lord's Supper and how the Lord's Supper inaugurated the new covenant. But, but lastly, it's natural when we're called into a covenant relationship with God that we're also called into a covenant relationship with his people, with a community. And that, that hints at the next thing, which is that the supper foreshadows a heavenly banquet. Because what's happening there, right? We're we're there in heaven face to face with Christ and with each other for all eternity. And so when we take the supper now, it's not as fully experienced as it will be then, but it is in some sense a foretaste. Uh, the bread and the cup, they, they, re- they remain bread and juice. But Christ is spiritually present with us in the supper, and the sense of intimacy and proximity that we have with our Savior and with each other is especially pronounced with a proper taking of the Lord's Supper. But it points to that day when it'll be fully experienced. So when Paul brings them back to this fundamental reality of what the Lord's Supper is in verses 23 through 26, it starts to click, I think, or it should click for the Corinthians. It's like, oh my goodness, everything we're doing in 17 through 22, it's the opposite Because these gospel realities represented the supper, what should it evoke in us? Uh, Things like gratitude, grateful that God has saved us. Things like humility, knowing that we didn't deserve this forgiveness. Christ, Christ was perfect for us. So We should come to the table humbly. We should come to the table gratefully. We should come with delight, just basking in the reality of how much God has loved us in Christ. We should come with a sense of togetherness because it's a communal meal. It's it's the communion. You take it with other people. So we should be eager to to show deference to one another at the Lord's table, to love each other in the same way that each of us has been loved in Christ. But they were not doing that. And so Paul then says in verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Well, we, we might not be facing the exact situation the Corinthians were. Uh, we, we don't live in a society where we have to try to stagger schedules. Thankfully, we can all gather on the Lord's Day for the Lord's Supper. But we should still ask, what are ways that we can possibly take the supper in an unworthy manner? And Paul gives us two categories in the text itself. In and, and verse 28, he implies that we can neglect to examine ourselves. And in verse 29, he implies that we can neglect to discern the body. Uh, Before we unpack what all that means, I just want to be crystal clear. The supper is only for unworthy people. (laughs) If if, if somebody is worthy in and of themselves, there's nothing for them in the supper. (laughs) It's like Jesus said, you know, I didn't come to... To heal for those who are well, I came for the sick. In other words, he came for those who need his saving. So so don't think of unworthy manner as in, am I a worthy person or am I an unworthy person? Uh, The only person who can make us worthy is Christ himself. But we are to still examine ourselves so we don't take it in an unworthy manner. And, And this is where we don't want to get too Lost in the weeds with introspection, because again, if we just constantly think, okay, I'm going to think about all I've done this week or this month, and the more I think about it, the more honest I am, the less worthy I feel, the less worthy I feel, I've got to wait until I'm worthy. It's actually, contrition is the appropriate starting point for the table. Uh, The point of examining ourselves is to remind ourselves in a fresh way, okay, what does this table represent, and what has God done for me? And I have an opportunity to renew my belief that Christ's shed blood is sufficient to cover my sins. So, when you hear examine oneself, we we should hear, remind ourselves of the good news of the gospel. Remind ourselves that even what we've sinned in that morning, if we're honest and humble before the Lord about it, that that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to cover it, that He's glad to have this meal with us. Another notion I mentioned is discerning the body. What does it mean to discern the body. Well, there's two common views among Orthodox scholars, and one of them is Paul is just amplifying what he's already said in verse 27 about making sure you're eating the bread and drinking the cup of the Lord in the manner that's worthy, almost like he's sort of using, when he says discern the body, he's just using a shorthand for the elements. Well, I certainly think that's part of what's going on. Uh, we are to discern and recognize what the elements represent, but I, but I actually think the second view gives a fuller picture of, of what I personally think Paul is getting at, which is that to discern the body includes recognizing the church. And, and there's a few reasons I think that. Um, one of them is actually linguistic. If you look at this paragraph in verses 27 through 32, there's a, there's a handful of times that the, the body and the blood or, or the bread and the cup or eating and drinking are mentioned together The only time any one of those is mentioned in isolation is right here in the middle of verse 29 when it says, without discerning the body. Paul very easily could have said, without discerning the body and the blood. He also does not use the preposition of the Lord the way he did in verse 27. That's not necessarily a strong argument, but I I, I think it's part of it. I think the stronger argument is if you cast back to chapter 10 in, in 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, that whole chapter is about idolatry and food offered to idols. And in verses 16 and 17, Paul almost seems to have a digression, like he goes on a rabbit trail in the middle of chapter 10. So I'll read verses 16 and 17 now. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So does the bread represent Christ's body? Well, yes, it definitely does. Does it also represent the body of Christ in the sense of the church? I, I think that's exactly how Paul just interpreted it in verse 17, that the one loaf represents we, the, the many of us who are part of one body. So one other verse I'll show you, if you go two chapters vo- forward to chapter 12, in verse 27 of chapter 12, Paul writes, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. I think maybe this is a helpful way to understand it. You know how in the context of divorce, Jesus says, uh, what God has joined together Let not man separate. (laughs) I'm going to borrow that when it comes to Christ and his body. You can't really think about Christ without thinking about the body whom he purchased with his blood. And you can't really think about God's people, the church, without thinking about Christ who is the head. (laughs) So I think part of what we are called to discern and recognize in the supper is simultaneously vertical and horizontal. Uh, that we are to, to be aware of the Lord himself and what the supper represents, but we are also to discern each other, to be cognizant of this as an opportunity to experience community and show love and affection for one another. What Paul says in verse 27 of chapter 11 is that when we do this in an unworthy manner, we're guilty concerning the body and the blood. What I simply think that means, and let me just back up for a minute, Paul is writing to Christians here. Uh, We know that because in chapter 1, in his greeting, I'll just read it to you, he addresses them as the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And in this section of the letter, he's talking about when they gather as a church. So he's addressing primarily Christians in this passage. I I read one interpretation that uh, I I ultimately don't agree with, but it basically said to be guilty of the body and blood because guilt carries that legal forensic nature to it is to, in a new way, become liable for the death of Christ in much the same way that the first people who executed him were liable. I I actually don't think that's helpful, and I was kind of comforted when I called Brad, I called Dad, and they were like, no, no, we we agree with you. We, We don't think that's right. Um, we know from Romans there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It would almost, if we were to become liable again for Jesus' death, that, that would seem to suggest we are condemned again. Instead, although it's still a serious matter, what I think this means is that when we don't honestly come aware of our sins and our need for forgiveness, and when we, when we don't come discerning the Lord and His church, that itself becomes another sin, Against Christ, So it's still very serious. It's, it's dishonoring Christ. We don't want to do it. <laughs> that would not be the proper, loving, obedient response to our Savior. But that judgment is not a final judgment, and we'll get to that momentarily, but you already saw in verse 32 that part of the whole thrust of this paragraph is that the judgment and the discipline for the Lord when we misstep in these ways is actually designed by him so that we will not be condemned with the world. So, so we'll get to that more in, in a moment. So we can come to the table in an unworthy manner if we're careless, if we're flippant, if we're just going through the motions. I, I also think um, with the idea of being aware of each other, I just want to share a story briefly because it was in, super instructive for me. Uh, there's a friend of mine that uh, we, we got into a very, un- for us, it was a very unusual, sharp disagreement that kind of came out of left field in fact, in the aftermath, I think we both said, where I was coming at with what was going on in my thinking and where you were coming at, like, we're, we're responsible for this, but it seemed like Satan also was um, eager to cause some division. But we had this sharp disagreement. It really kind of left my head spinning. And a few days from that, we were supposed to, with the church, take the Lord's Supper together. And the next day, my friend left me a, a voice message And it basically indicated, look, I really regret the way this conversation went, and I will totally respect your space if you need time to chew on it, but if at all possible, I'd love to resolve this and try to work this out with you because I want to be able to take the Lord's Supper with a clear conscience this Sunday. And, you know, I had been feeling quite defensive up until that point, and then the Spirit really convicted me when I got that message aside because I was like, I'm I'm not going to talk to this person for at least a week, you know. I was like, hey, that's not at all Christ-like or how I want to be treated. And so by God's grace, we had a great conversation. We acknowledged the things we regretted. We acknowledged where we misstepped. We forgave each other. And it made for me and probably for my friend, uh, it made the Lord's Supper that week sweeter. <laughs> you know, it's—so um, we're taking the Lord's Supper two weeks from today on September 4th. If you're not out of town or you can be here, uh, please plan to be here. If, I would encourage you, I'd encourage myself, all of us, if there's any kind of unresolved bitterness that you might have with a brother or sister in the church or, or even somebody within your own household, seek to be at peace about that. You know I'm, I'm not suggesting that you can't take the separate if that's not resolved, but like Paul says elsewhere, as much as it depends on you, if it's possible, be at peace with all men. I would, I would encourage you to seek to, to be restored. So that your experience of the lord 's Supper will be sweeter, I mentioned that this passage talks about discipline it's, This is just part of preaching through the Bible, right like it, it's, it's not sensitive to modern sensibilities to talk about a, a loving God who who disciplines his children, but really it's actually because he loves us that he Disciplines us. The, we read in verse 30 that in the Corinthian church, part of what they were experiencing was illness, weakness, and even, um, even death. I, I don't know how that strikes you, that God would possibly, as a form of discipline, permit one of his children to experience illness or even pass away. Here's a a major caution I want to put out there on the front end of this point. (laughs) This is not a call for us who don't have God's perspective to try to speculate (laughs) as to when others, or perhaps even ourselves, if we know the reason why we're going through a certain hardship. Because, just to be super clear, any one of us can become ill, and we will, in fact, all physically die, and that oftentimes has nothing to do with a specific corrective discipline from the Lord. But yet, I do think God wants us to be aware that He is within His rights to do this, and part of the whole emphasis of this passage is that we can unnecessarily bring on unwelcome, difficult discipline from the Lord. We'll still be His child, he'll still use the discipline for our good, but I don't know about you, I don't want to unnecessarily go through discipline if I don't have to. Um, and the answer to that is really the self-examination, which he, which he drills down into further in verse 31 when he says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. I think Paul is just explaining there further, if we come honestly to the table in repentance, corrective discipline from the Lord in that context will not be needed. The point of the discipline is to grab us by the collar and put us on the right path and to lead us to repentance. If we are genuinely repentant, uh, the, the, way, actually, the way Calvin put it, <laughs> is that we're not, it's not like we're paying God. We're not compensating him. That's, it's not like we're doing our penance by, being, by feeling bad. But if we're genuinely repentant, it wards off the need for fatherly discipline. Um. But what I think is wonderful about this passage is no matter which angle you turn at for the believer, God just gives more grace. <laughs> you know, where, where, where sin increased, grace abounds all the more, we're told in Romans. And, and so even if we were to suffer death, it, we know in this passage it's, it's not for final condemnation. It's uh, so we won't be condemned along with the world. I'm just going to read to you something that John Piper wrote. He, he pastored Bethlehem Baptist Church for a few decades and established the Desiring God ministry. But many years ago, he wrote this in a meditation on this passage. He said, Even the death of saints, which is discipline and judgment, is not condemnation but salvation. God is taking this sinning saint because he loves him so much, he will not let him go on in sin. This is our solid encouragement. What it says to all of us is this. We do not need to be certain whether the time of our death is owing to our sinning or to the devil's cruelty or to God's otherwise purposes. What we need is the deep assurance that even if my dying is owing to my own folly and sin, I can rest peacefully in the love of God. At such a moment, these words will be precious beyond measure. We are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned. So God's love for us is so fierce that for those who are in Christ, he customizes for each of us whatever we need to be kept from ruining our lives through persistent sin or, or dishonoring his name. If you uh, turn over to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, th- this colors out the picture for us even more about the nature of God's discipline for those he loves I'm going to start reading in verse 6 And yeah, so going back to, to 1 Corinthians, I, we should also note that uh, the Greek word in verse 32 for condemned uh, refers to the condemnation of the lost, whereas the, the cousin word, but a different word in verse 29 for judgment, who, you know, who, the person who drinks judgment on himself, that word for judgment means chastisement or instruction or education. So, so the judgment in view here is in order to further train us and equip us, not to finally condemn us. Our Chapel Life group went through 1 Corinthians this last year, and we, I, one of the tools I used was this book written by a pastor in England named Andrew Wilson, and he gave this five-directional paradigm that I thought was a great sort of synopsis of the posture we take to the Lord's Supper. He basically says we need to first look up. In other words, we, we take bread, we give thanks, and prayerful thanks, we look up to God, we thank Him for what He's done for us in Christ. We need to also look back, because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, and that's an active calling to mind, a, a deliberate meditation on the things we've been considering this morning, all that His body given and shed blood signify for us. So we look back on that. We also look forward... Because, you know, as it says in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 20, uh, verse 26, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this, this supper we have that's a foreshadowing points to that greater, even more celebratory day when we feast eternally, forever. So we look forward to that. We also uh, look within, and by that he means the kind of self-examination we've been talking about, a fresh reckoning of our sins, coming to God honestly asking for forgiveness and believing truly that He has made provision for our sins. And we look around, discerning, discerning the body, <laughs> discerning the church, understanding this is a communal meal and acting like it. So we look up, we look back, we look forward, we look within, and we look around. In a moment, we're going to sing Psalm 130. Uh, it's one of my favorite songs. And the opening verse... I think, kind of is a good depiction for us of if we come to the table broken by sin of how we might start that thought process. Because the opening verse says, um, uh, from the depths of woe I raise to thee a voice of lamentation. Lord, turn a gracious ear to me and hear my supplication. So in other words, we should lament our own sins, we should lament our sorrows, and we should go to God with that. (laughs) We should cry out to God with that. And, and there's no more appropriate time to do that than at the table. But we ask God to, to turn a gracious ear to us because he is gracious and promises to be so. And then the next line the songwriter adds um, If thou iniquities dost mark uh, thy secret sins and misdeeds dark. It's kind of old English, but what does that mean? Well, in other words, if God was to deal with us and treat us on the basis of him keeping a record, and and marking down everything we've done that's wrong, if he he took into account every iniquity, every misdeed that we did privately in the dark or whatever, the rhetorical question is, the the next part, who can stand before thee? (laughs) If if that's how God dealt with us, who can stand before him? Nobody. But then as you move through the verses in the song, it starts referencing how Christ's grace avails for all of us. And that there's so much hope in the gospel, and so in some ways, the posture we take to the Lord's Supper is a paradigm for the entire Christian life. We are to regularly be preaching the gospel to ourselves and to each other. We're to be understand understand that we are we are not our own; that we were bought for uh, by we are bought with a price. We belong to our heavenly Father, and that we've been placed into a community. And so I hope that uh, as we take the supper on September 4th and at future times, that, 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 that this teaching will be helpful for you. It was helpful for me to prepare it. So I'm just going to close with a brief word of prayer before the musicians come up. Dear Father, thank you that you don't hide yourself from us when it comes to what we need to know about you and about ourselves to be in right relationship with you. Thank you that you did not withhold your son. And because you did not hold him back, we know that you will now graciously give us all things. Thank you for graciously giving us Christian friendship. Thank you for giving us the supper to celebrate. And thank you that we can long for that day when we'll celebrate it without ending. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.